Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, translated into 190 different languages and connected to a worldwide network of activist correspondents. We are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement, and I am your host, Steve D'Angelo. That movement, the movement to liberate the most valuable plant on the planet, and the people who love that plant from centuries of oppression continues to build power, momentum, and public support almost everywhere in the world. But the progress is spotty. It's uneven, it's far too slow, and in many places around the world, members of our tribe, some of the most gentle people on earth, are still being arrested, publicly humiliated, injured, imprisoned, and in some cases, losing their lives to the enforcers of prohibition. Our feature reports this episode from New York, Colombia, Germany, and Austria will document both the encouraging progress that cannabis activists are making and the heartbreaking tragedies our tribe is still suffering through. First, some headlines from the past few weeks. The tragic story of Shikari Richardson focused the world's attention on the absurdity of penalizing athletes for using cannabis while allowing the use of alcohol and prescription drugs that are far more dangerous. Shakari, a bold and charismatic Olympic sprinter who was well positioned for a possible gold medal, was removed from the U.S. Olympic team on July 6th after testing positive for cannabis use, even though international Olympics officials said she would still be allowed to compete in Tokyo. President Biden, apparently unable to resist any opportunity to throw shade on cannabis, supported Shikari's suspension with the completely meaningless observation that the rules are the rules. Well, thanks, Joe. We hadn't realized that yet. Shikari publicly apologized for disappointing her fans, but we here at Radio Free Cannabis believe Shikari is the one that has been wronged, and that she is the one that's owed an apology. The real blame here lies with the U.S. Olympic team officials who decided to suspend Shikari for using a substance that is legal in the majority of the United States and has been scientifically proven to be safe and effective for the recovery of athletes. Shame on them. Ten years from now, the absurdity of their actions will be crystal clear. But in the meantime, the United States has lost an almost sure shot at an Olympic gold medal, and Shikari has lost a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and potentially millions of dollars just for making the safest and healthiest choice, both for her and for society. Highlighting this injustice, barely a week later, U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer filed a comprehensive bill to legalize cannabis at the federal level. Schumer's bill, while problematic in many regards, would entirely remove cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act and create an Office of Cannabis Justice to ensure equity and diversity in the industry. These would be remarkably progressive steps from a federal government that to this day 
still denies that there are even any valid medical uses for the plant. But don't get excited yet. Most observers rate the Schumer bill's chances of passage by the Senate as very slim. Federal legalization in the United States is still probably several years in the future. The beginning of the month of July saw the U.S. state of Connecticut become the latest of several northeastern states to pass adult-use legalization. Unlike the neighboring state of New York, which has stated its intention to create a pathway for traditional cannabis business people from the legacy market to enter the legal market, Connecticut seems to be moving in the opposite direction, prohibiting anybody with felony cannabis convictions from participating in the regulated industry. With passage of Connecticut's law, cannabis is now legal for adults in 21 U.S. states and territories. As we go to air towards the end of July, the Latin American nation of Colombia is imminently expected to announce the beginning of legal cannabis flower exports. The production and export of extracted cannabis oil for medical purposes has been legal in Colombia for several years, and the addition of whole flower exports is expected to very substantially increase the growth of Colombia's legal cannabis industry. If Colombia can manage to tame the corruption and violence of its armed forces and continues to reform its cannabis laws, it would be well positioned to be among the world's lowest cost nations for cannabis. In the United States, cultivation costs from 50 cents to a dollar per gram, compared to around 5 cents per gram in Colombia. Well, the world sure could use more good, clean, low-cost cannabis. Ireland has become the latest European country to see a wickedly dangerous synthetic cannabinoid known as MDMB4EN-PINACA hit the unregulated underground cannabis market. This vile substance, cooked up by sleazoid chemists, then sprayed on hemp flowers or low-grade cannabis by criminal gangs to stretch their profits, has been linked to three deaths in the UK and one death in Sweden, along with 11 other reported cases of poisoning that required hospitalization. These deaths and poisonings are the direct consequence of prohibition. The only reason most cannabis consumers buy and ingest this contaminated product is because they don't know the chemicals have been sprayed on it. The best way to put the criminals who are distributing dangerous synthetic cannabis products out of business is to displace them with good, clean, affordable, natural cannabis. This would happen rapidly and automatically with zero enforcement effort by the government if one simple step were taken. Legalize cannabis for all adult uses in Ireland and the UK and Sweden and everywhere in the world. One of the main things standing in the way of that goal are ongoing efforts by the prohibitionists to muddy the waters of debate by advancing shaky, supposedly quote-unquote scientific studies that make a variety of sensational claims about cannabis that have already been thoroughly and repeatedly disproven and debunked. Their latest campaign was launched in late July with simultaneous and highly inaccurate news stories on American media giants CBS, CNN, and Fox. These stories 
apparently timed to influence the debate about the Schumer bill, variously claimed that modern cannabis is an entirely different and much more dangerous product than what our grandparents consume, that cannabis use increases the incidence of insanity, and that huge numbers of American children are consuming cannabis edibles and being poisoned by them. All of these stories are demonstrably untrue, as they have been untrue for the past five decades, when some version or another, one ridiculous claim or another, has been advanced by prohibitionists desperate to find some justification for their ongoing campaign against the most valuable plant on the planet. We've been chipping away at their lies for a long time now, like water dripping on a stone. Sometimes progress is very slow, and sometimes it's more rapid. But for those of us who love the plant, there's no other option but to keep on dripping and keep on chipping until nothing is left of this mountain of lies. I'm going to close us out of the headlines now on a cheery note with an example of the kind of new freedoms our collective work is bringing forth into the world. Today, airports in New York State, as a direct consequence of that state's recent legalization law, have announced they will no longer seize cannabis found in travelers' luggage or have those travelers arrested. For those of us who have been hauled out of airports in handcuffs, as I have been twice in my career, this is a huge relief. I don't think I'm ever going to entirely get rid of the PTSD those two incidents caused me, but it's nice to know that at least in New York, I'm not likely to suffer a repeat experience. But do be aware, friends, there's a limit to the generosity of the state of New York, and that limit is three ounces of cannabis. More than that, and you still risk the handcuffs. So be careful as you enjoy these wonderful new freedoms that we've brought about with our love and our determination. We turn now to our global network of activist correspondents for more of that love and determination. We'll stay in New York for our first story from the ever-ready and always knowledgeable Bill Weinberg, coming to us from the legendary Tompkins Square Park in the East Village of New York City. Thanks, Steve. Well, here I am standing in the hallowed grounds of Tompkins Square Park, which is really an unacknowledged birthplace of um, so much radical history, counterculture history, and cannabis history, which has really affected all of the United States and even the world. The very first smoke-in in America, to the best of my knowledge, was held here in Tompkins Square Park in December of 1964, uh, convened by Allen Ginsberg, the famous beatnik poet, and uh, Peter Orlovsky, his uh, collaborator and lover. And they actually, uh, they smoked uh, in public here in Tompkins Square Park in December of 1964, and they held a little rally over at the, uh, the city welfare office, which at that time was over on, um, on Avenue B, demanding legalization. And of course, people who are familiar with counterculture history will know that, you know, Ginsburg was kind of a, um, a torchbearer. He kind of passed on the flame from the beatniks to the hippies. And uh, then the, uh, out of the hippies came the yippies. The yippies were like the political activist hippies who got organized to protest the war in Vietnam and to advocate for cannabis legalization. And uh, Ginsburg was uh, involved with them as well when they launched the, uh, the first, you know, big smoke-ins, which became a regular um, 
uh, ongoing affair here in New York City and around the country and around the world. In 1973, they started the big um, pot parade, which has been going on ever since then. Today it's called the, um, the, uh, the Cannabis March. <clears throat> And uh, back then, it was a very, uh, you know, radical, uh, you know, kind of anarchistic counterculture affair. The fact that we just had one um, just uh, back in May here in New York City up at Union Square now, uh, where um, Chuck Schumer spoke, the Senate Majority Leader, just shows how far we've come and uh, how, you know, this once extremely radical counterculture, anarchistic kind of ethic has now been embraced by the mainstream. But there's been a lot of water under the bridge in the intervening years, that's for sure. And among the other things which happened in Tompkins Square Park during uh, during all those long years is, well, for starters, in 1967, just uh, four, five, six, three years after the, um, after the first smoke-in, you had the, uh, the 1967 Tompkins Square Park riot, the hippie riot, so to speak, where um, there were a bunch of hippies hanging out in the park. Back then, what, what the you can either call it the Lower East Side or the East Village. The hippies started calling it the East Village because the beatniks got priced out of Greenwich Village by rising rents in the early 1960s. Came east here to the Lower East Side where the rents were cheaper. That's what gave the area the cachet for alternative culture, which is what attracted the hippies. So it was like in the state in the Haight Ashbury district in San Francisco, you had the whole uh, hippie scene happening here in the East Village during that same period. And on Memorial Day of 1967, there was a big spontaneous party going on here in Tompkins Square Park with hippies strumming on guitars and Puerto Ricans beating on conga drums, having a lot of fun and making a lot of noise. And some of the older neighborhood residents called the police to complain about the noise. The police came in, tried to break up the party, and uh, of course, everybody ignored them. Then they started trying to grab guitars. People locked arms and refused to be moved. The police started using their nightsticks. And that turned into the first Tompkins Square Park uh, riot of um, the 20th century. There had been earlier ones back in the back in the 1800s, <clears throat> and after that, the uh, the politics got a lot harsher. Openly revolutionary groups began to emerge, particularly the Young Lords, who were uh, kind of like the Puerto Rican equivalent of the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers also had a presence here, as did um, the Diggers and the Provos and the Yippies and other kind of like uh, hippie anarchist. Um, street fighting gangs which began to emerge uh, then you move into the um, into the 1970s the drugs began to change the hippies had brought in marijuana and LSD in the 1970s organized crime got in on the act and they flooded the neighborhood with cocaine and heroin then you had the urban blight landlord arson and abandonment by the time I started hanging out in this neighborhood in the late 70s early 80s it was really kind of a rough neighborhood and Tompkins Square was by that point something of a no-go zone you didn't come into this park unless you wanted to buy drugs and I don't mean pot I mean dangerous drugs or um, or get mugged and that began to change due to a um, uh, again not due to some intervention from the city fathers from on high but a grassroots initiative from below and the big turning point here was 1988 when the homeless actually established an encampment in the park and August 6 1988 when they first tried to impose at 1 a.m. curfew, uh, Tompkins Square exploded into um, a huge riot, the one we still call today the Tompkins Square Park Riot, although there were many before, and there's been quite a few since. That was the beginning of the three years that we call the, the class war period on the Lower East Side, when there was a whole um, series of uh, really angry protests and riots, which finally ended in 1991, when the uh, the park was closed by uh, decree of the mayor's office and that uh, we didn't have a park in this neighborhood for two years 
And when the park reopened, the curfew was actually enforced. It's a midnight curfew now, or an hour earlier than the original one, just assault on our wounds. And there is a certain sense that the cycle is coming around yet again, because um, it's very strange. There's some, really this you know, unprecedented atmosphere, really, since the Black Lives Matter uprising of last year, there's been this um, unprecedented atmosphere of freedom in the city. And I, I would say, I mean, I can certainly feel it. And with the passage of Murta back in March, you can actually smoke in public on the city streets in New York. In fact, anywhere in New York State, all the way up to uh, the northern Adirondacks and Niagara Falls. So, uh, but at the same time, there's kind of a, um, a backlash going on. And due to the um, extremely loud and exuberant party scene with a lot of public smoking, I will add, um, in Washington Square Park over in, um, over in Greenwich Village, the, uh, the city has once again decided to make the curfew earlier. They actually tried to enforce a 10 p.m. curfew in Washington Square Park a couple of weeks ago. And on, um, on June 5th, there actually was a little riot in, uh, Tom, in, uh, in Washington Square Park when the police tried to impose a 10 p.m. curfew and a bunch of people were arrested. So there's this uh, strange sense of, uh, you know, cycles coming around again. And I... Um, anticipate that if they attempt to do that here in Tompkins Square there could be trouble so hopefully they will not attempt to do that but in any event it's uh, it feels like it's a very um, interesting uh, fertile time here in New York City which is just pregnant with possibility and uh, I would say that this particular piece of turf that I'm standing on Tompkins Square Park is going to be a, um, a key point to watch in the months and the years to come for uh, Radio Free Cannabis, this has been Bill Weinberg of the Global Ganja Report. Thank you, Bill, for that tour into the past and future of the New York City Cannabis Tribe. I'm very happy to be able to bring some of this mostly lost and hidden history to light for the Radio Free Cannabis audience. The leading role that California's played in the cannabis freedom movement is well known all around the world. But in fact, New York has played almost just as important a role especially in the early days of the movement. It was the place where many of the most important leaders of our movement, people like me and Ed Rosenthal and Ethan Nadelman, all got our start. So it's nice to see the city finally get some of the credit and recognition it's due. We turn next to another place that's played a critical role in the development of our culture and our tribe and our industry, the country of Colombia. This story is an initial report from a new RFC activist correspondent, Karina Palmer. Welcome to Radio Free Cannabis, Karina. Thanks, Steve. Colombia is a country with a long history when it comes to cannabis. The reputation and quality of cannabis cultivation extends way back to indigenous and sacred use. But it's really around the 70s where it gained international notoriety when the North American cannabis traffickers made inroads into Colombia. Despite the Catholic Church's strong heritage and the legacy of the imported prohibition that dictates national law, cannabis in Colombia is legal for specific medical uses. Personal cultivation up to 20 plants 
as well as personal consumption, it's been decriminalized since the early 90s. Cannabis remains illegal for commercial sale. However, in 1994, Colombia's Supreme Court determined that possession for personal use was legal. I had the opportunity to discuss this and a few topics with Julian Quintero. He's a Colombian leader who is helping to reshape the understanding of drug policy and working closely with government agencies in the restructuring of drug policy in the country. How is law enforced in Colombia in terms of possession? What happens if someone is detained Based on the fact that Colombia allows the minimum dose, there is also jurisprudential development where it doesn't matter how much you carry, as long as you can demonstrate that amount is for personal, recreational, or medicinal use. It is highly probable that subsequent legislative regulations such as decrees, laws, etc. will respect these elements already in place. That is basically to say, rather than how much you carry, you will have to prove that what you have on you is for personal use. By 1994, the development of a new constitution born in Colombia in 1991 is a more liberal constitution. It is a more secularized constitution and includes a chapter and the article called The Free Development of Personality. When a magistrate says, free development of personality is not enough, but the bearing and personal dose consumption must be recognized. So that year, the minimum dose of marijuana is except for Colombia, which is 20 grams. Imagine that in 94, the world is just beginning to see the first signs of regulation, seen mostly through the medical lens. This man appears saying it's okay to carry 20 grams of marijuana in Colombia, which is a lot, right? So police persecution, the free development of personality, and the minimum dose, all these points of view begin to compete. So towards the year 2007, the first public policy preventing the consumption of psychoactive substances is born from the public health perspective. It's been four years since the first law allows the production and commercialization of medicinal cannabis. And at this moment, we have a bill in Congress for the regulation of recreational cannabis or adult use has already passed the first debate and now from July 20th on we'll start the second debate. How does the general public perceive cannabis and the cannabis movement in this new road towards legalization? Colombia is experiencing the transition many countries have experienced of prejudice and denial of the medicinal and therapeutic properties of cannabis. I think when the government opens the door to talk about cannabis, it comes to the surface that all those people who have had an approach to cannabis have somehow denied it because of laws, morals, or religion. Old ladies had a bottle of alcohol and marijuana at home for pain soothing always. I think those two stories are coming together. And when you compare the public opinion in regards to regulation from 10 years ago, it has dropped from a negative 85% who denied it to a 55%. I think that is a world we are living, which joins those two extremes of interpretation. Why do you think this process is taking so long? Prohibition has done a good job making the public think the fault lies in the substance. 
and not the prohibition. They put everything in the same bag. Marijuana, cocaine, heroin. Many people have suffered the consequences of prohibition, especially older people who are the ones who suffered the most in the time of Pablo Escobar, for instance. Any manifestation of the drug issue in Colombia is associated with the bombs and the murders of Pablo Escobar's time. So there's a big set of news announced for Monday, July 19th. I would like you to walk us a little bit through that and what it means. We have always been seen as a third world country, producers of raw materials for the first world to make excellent products. So when the cannabis was first regulated, the sale of dry flour was not allowed. Only the sale of oils was permitted. Well, it seems that on Monday at 11 a.m., the president will announce the dry flour sales approval. And finally, after two years of pushing, and four years of moving the law forward, it will be a yes. What kind of relationship is the current relationship between Colombia and the United States? I am very sorry to say the victims of the war on drugs, the youngsters who live in persecution and the peasants, farmers who live in fear, are harboring resentment against North American policies. They can't conceive the reality that now the U.S. allows cultivation, sale, and they allow everything. People here continue to go to jail and get killed by a prohibitionist drug policy imposed by the Americans. That is something we need to ask more of and fix in the political arena. The U.S. needs to become more flexible towards the enforcement of the war on drugs abroad because we are the ones who suffer it and live it. Thank you so much, Julian, for accepting this invitation. This is Karina Palmer of Compassion Cannabis reporting for Radio Free Cannabis. Thank you. Back Karina. to you, Steve. That was a great initial report, and I think Julian is 100% correct. It's beyond outrageous that with the majority of states in the United States now allowing some form of legal cannabis sales, the people of Colombia and Mexico and other countries around the world are still suffering and dying at the hands of the American-sponsored and funded war on drugs. In the United States, people like former Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives John Boehner, who was one of the main supporters of the war on drugs, today are legally making millions of dollars from cannabis. Meanwhile, thousands of people continue to be displaced, imprisoned, and killed in Colombia. It's wrong. It's disgusting, it's criminal, and all I can say to my friends in Colombia and Mexico and the other places that are still suffering is that we here in the United States will continue our struggle until all of these laws, local, state, federal, all of them, all of the laws that support this madness and violence are finally tossed into the dustbin of history where they belong. We'll hear next from Nika, reporting on the latest developments in Germany and Austria. This is another initial report from a brand new RFC activist correspondent. And I need to say at this point how happy I am that so many RFC viewers have been inspired to become correspondents, to bring us stories of what's going on in their country and their cities. It's another example of how rapidly and widely our movement is growing, spreading all around the globe. Nika, welcome to Radio Free Cannabis. Thank you, Steve, and hello from Germany. We've got good news and bad news. But let's start with the basics. So basically, 
cannabis is mostly illegal in Germany. Meaning, the grow, the harvesting, the sale, the purchase, the possession, it's all illegal. One exception is the consumption. And in most cases, if you are found with only low quantities, but only personal possession, that won't be take to, taken to trial. Also, since 2017, medical cannabis is legal in Germany. But it's not that easy at all to qualify as a patient. First of all, you have to find a doctor who knows about the endocannabinoid system or who accepts cannabis as an alternative medicine. And even then, only few medical disorders qualify in the eyes of doctors and insurances as valid for medical cannabis. Leaving people with medical disorders, for example, like depression, PTSD, and anxiety, with mostly no way of getting a prescription or having to pay all the costs themselves, so the insurance not covering the cost for the medicine. Just so you understand, medical cannabis is two to four times more expensive than cannabis on a black market. This forces a big part of society to depend on the black market, which can actually bring a better quality than medical cannabis, but in worst case, leave them with something very bad, namely stretched weed. The stretched weed is, it's assumed that around 10 to 20% of the black market is with stretched weed. And this means that they use synthetic cannabinoids or for example, even lead um, to make it heavier and to stretch it. So we take a perfectly good healing plant and force people who want to heal to use possibly something that will even make them sick. But we also got some good news. It's the election year this year and four out of the six biggest parties in Germany are in any sort pro-adult use legalization. We will have to see if this is only voter catching. And in any ways, we have to keep in mind that we don't just applaud any sort of legalization, but fight for a fair market and fight for the people who are convicted because of cannabis. What we know for sure is that it will take some time until we have an adult use legalization over here. And so far, the situation against consumers, growers, entrepreneurs is drastic. Let me give you two examples. Hussein Khalaf was a perfectly healthy 19-year-old boy who died after a violent police attack on him because he smoked a joint. So what happened is that Hussein and his friend were smoking a joint in a park when police came. He panicked, ran away, police ran after him and forced him violently to the ground using violence and pepper spray. An ambulance was called as it's normal when pepper spray is in use and Husai was telling them that he wasn't feeling well at all, that he couldn't breathe. Still, the ambulance left, leaving him with the police 
who took him into custody, where he later collapsed and finally then died in hospital. We have to keep in mind that we're talking about a healthy, perfectly healthy young boy over here, who was doing nothing wrong, only smoking a joint. And keep in mind, the consumption of cannabis isn't illegal. Family and friends are fighting for justice for Kusai. As far as I know, they will probably make a petition because the situation doesn't look too good and police is denying everything. Soon as I know more about the petition, I will give you the news so we can fight worldwide for justice for Kusai. Another example are CBD shops. So our main court, our highest court, the Court of Justice, the Federal Court of Justice, just ruled that CBD bots aren't illegal as far as they are run from legal hemp, meaning that THC has to be under 0.2%. Although this rule, police are still raiding CBD shops in the middle of pandemic, taking all their stuff and even frightening them with sentences from minimum one year in jail. Basically, these are the news, a quick glance from Germany. So we are fighting. Some things are getting better, but still it's a long way. Before the end, let me give you a quick glance into our neighborhood country, namely Austria. Three men were sentenced to nine, eight and a half, and three years in prison for growing, harvesting, and helping to harvest cannabis. These men were totally normal men, doing normal jobs, having family, never before having anything to do with justice. Still, they got this very harsh sentence, which is comparable to sentences for homicide and even higher than the average sentence for child abuse. Please keep in mind that these men wanted to do nothing wrong, just to help people with a healing plant. Justice for Hemp is fighting for a shorter sentence. You can find a petition on change.org and you can help with your signature from wherever in the world you are to fight for these three men. Thank you so much. This was Nika from Germany for Radio Free Cannabis. Thank you, Nika. That was a great first report, and you delivered it in a remarkably calm tone of voice, given the deeply disturbing nature of the news you reported. What a horrifying series of events from the heart of the continent, Europe, that most likes to hold itself out as the world's best example of sophistication, civilization, science, and democracy. Yet here are these stories of perfectly decent citizens going about their lives, earning their livings, not harming a soul, just doing the kinds of things all human beings should be allowed to do. Being yanked out of public parks and chased down and murdered by police, or dying and being hospitalized from poisoned underground product, or peaceful cannabis growers being hunted down like vicious criminals and given the kind of prison sentences normally reserved for murderers or child abusers. This is Europe? Really? The same Europe that looks down its nose at the rest of the world? 
Well, in my view as an American, Europe is also best remembered for colonialism, slavery, and genocide. But setting all that history aside for a moment, the current blindness and inaction of Europe and its High Court of Justice regarding these true cannabis crimes means they've certainly forfeited any moral authority that they might have ever had claim to in the first place. And that moral authority will remain forfeit until full cannabis freedom and justice is a reality across all of Europe. If Europe wants to hold itself up as a paragon of human rights, it's about time for the EU bureaucrats in Brussels to start walking their own talk. In any case, all of us here in the cannabis tribe have learned that these sorts of turns and twists, this sort of posturing and posing, all these steps forward and all these steps backward, the uneven nature of progress, it's all just part of the movement and the cause that we've committed our lives to. No matter what happens from day to day, our tribe will continue to do what we've done for the past half century. We'll wake up happy every day, knowing in our hearts that our cause is just, and in the end, we will prevail. And through each one of our days, no matter how challenged we may be, we'll do all we can to tell the truth about cannabis and to encourage others to embrace that truth and to make sure that all of our sisters and brothers still in prison are released. And all the while, we'll do our best to stop and smell the flowers, to appreciate all the gifts Mother Nature has blessed us with, to dance joyously with each other through this precious life, to spread as much love and healing and compassion as we know how to do. And that's what we're gonna keep on doing until we get all the way home, home to the world we really wanna live in, the world that we know really is possible. I'm going to sign off now, but before I go, I want to speak directly to those of you in difficult circumstances. Remember, no matter how challenging your life is at the present moment, as long as you love cannabis, you'll never be alone. There's hundreds of millions of us now, and we've all had the same experiences with this plant. We've all learned the same lessons, and we've all developed the same value system. Chief among those values is love and loyalty. So know this, we will never forget about you, we will never abandon you, and we will not stop and we will not rest until cannabis is completely free everywhere on this planet, until every cannabis prisoner comes home to their family, and until all of us who love this plant have an honored place in our families and our society. Until I see you next, remember to be proud of who you are and the work that we're doing together. Stay strong and be well.